Okay, so if you guys could turn to Judges 7, and we're just going to be starting off in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 23 of Judges 7, and yes, we will get all those verses done. So, yeah, you can buckle up for that. Um, (coughs) So, Judges 7, uh, starting in verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouths, was three hundred men. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise and go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid, go down. If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Porah his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord 
and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita toward Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Meloia by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So those 23 verses summarize the story of Gideon overthrowing the Midianites. And next week we will cover uh, the kind of conclusion of this uh, series of events and kind of the follow-up uh, with Gideon. <clears throat> but something that I think you might all be able to relate to in this story is it's both familiar and uh, depending on when you grew up or what small group leader you had that first taught you this story, uh, you might have very widely different uh, interpretations of what the text actually means. Um, so I want to encourage you to, uh, even though it's a familiar story, once again, look at it with fresh eyes and we're going to try to unpack these verses uh, in short order together. Uh, the title of the study tonight is Power Displayed in Weakness. Uh, power Displayed in Weakness, uh, that is uh, an homage to uh, Paul when he says that uh, Christ's power is made perfect uh, in weakness. And we certainly see that uh, in the character of Gideon. The power of God is made perfect in Gideon's human frailty, in his, in his fragile nature. Last week, of course, we looked at Gideon's uh, doubt and his, his inability to trust God uh, to go before him. Uh, we saw that God was able to condescend down to Gideon's level and encourage him even despite what seems to us to be a lapse in faith for Gideon. And you'll notice those same kind of events take place in these verses. So uh, the first thing I want to point out to you as we, as we move through the text uh, is really the key verse of this whole section, which you see in verse 2. And I just want to reread that uh, quote for you in verse 2. When, this is the reason the Lord gives. He says, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And I think if we understand verse 2 of this section, it's going to help us to understand actually all 23 verses of chapter 7 because if you don't get verse 2 as the main idea, if, if we don't get that on the front end, it's going to make very little sense to us why God does what he does in the rest of the passage. It seems the whole time like God is trying to undermine Gideon's efforts, whereas really the whole time he told us what he's going to do in verse 2, which is going to whittle down the army so there's no more room for Gideon to boast. And once we understand that key idea, I think it becomes a lot easier to put the text together because we don't have to come up with any weird interpretations. For example, when we get down to God whittling down the army, we don't have to say, well, the people who lapped with their hands, they really were displaying a kind of military intelligence because they were on guard and they pulled the water with their hands and they lapped and they were able to look around, whereas the people who knelt were displaying some kind of careless giving into the lust of their thirst. There's nothing to that in the text. Neither lapping nor kneeling is particularly virtuous. The whole point is, in verse 2, God said, I'm going to take your army down to the bare bones so there's no more room for you to boast. So it's not that God is seeing something in the army and he's keeping people who are particularly virtuous and people who aren't, he's letting go. He's simply getting down the army essentially by any means necessary. And so the first level at which God cuts the army down 
is by the simple question in verse 3, whoever is fearful and trembling, let them return. So Gideon turns probably to his army and says, if anyone's fearful or trembling, you can go home. And in that simple action, he cuts his army down from 32,000 to 10,000. So the army has been cut into one-third the size of what it previously was. And if you know Gideon and you're aware of his previous endeavors earlier in chapter 6, you wonder why Gideon also doesn't go home at this point, because he is described as a person being fearful, so fearful, in fact, that he won't even face the people in his own village. So we don't know why Gideon doesn't go home. All we know is these people go home. Gideon, for some reason, stays. And the 10,000 people that are staying, God turns once again. In verse 4, he reaffirms what he says in verse 2, where he affirms and he says, the people are still too many. And what he means by that is not that they're too many where they themselves could defeat the Midianites, but they're too many to the point where if I give you victory at this moment, you're going to find reason to boast in yourselves. You're not going to be dependent on me for the boasting. This is the theme that you're going to see constantly throughout these verses. So the first time God says there's too many, he cuts down the army into a third. Then he says again, there's too many. And then he's going to vastly reduce the numbers of Gideon's army. The second elimination is a, is a twofold kind of sifting. The first step is take the people down to get water and then observe how they drink the water. And he doesn't say on the front end, the people who lap are good and the people who kneel are bad. And so what you do is you send those who kneel home and those who lap you keep. What he says is just observe and see who kneels and who laps. And I will tell you on the back end who to sift. So we know that God's not saying one is better than the other. All he's saying is just observe what they do. Allow them to drink from the water. And so, uh, they go down to the water and then we, Gideon observes and he observes in this case that 300 men of the 10,000, meaning 9,700 people kneel down to drink water. And these are men who are firm and not, uh, the, they're not afraid, or at least they won't say that they're afraid. And so this is not them displaying a lack of military awareness. These are military men. The, the camp of the Midianites is probably several miles away from them. So it's not like there's an imminent attack. Uh, so it's not like they're losing their guard by kneeling down and getting water. They're doing something that would have been totally normal. Um, but he observes that 300 men drink just by pulling the water up to their hands and putting it to their mouth. And God says, send the people who knelt home and take the people who drank by pulling water to their mouth, keep them, the, the 300 of them, and that's going to be the size of your army. And if we're going to try to make sense of this, we can't look to the men or anything virtuous within them. Because remember, the whole focus of the text is God saying, lest you can boast in anything that you've done yourself. He's saying that he's going to select for his own purpose. Because right after he does this whittling down process, he cuts the numbers down to 300. You'll see uh, in verse 7, he says, uh, send those home, keep the ones who lapped, and I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. So God is once again affirming that it's his own strength that is going to be responsible for the salvation, not the strength of the Midianites. It's not, or sorry, not the strength of the Israelites in any way. The Midianites are, they far outnumbered the 32,000. They way more outnumber the 10,000. They have hopelessly outnumbered the 300. But the whole point is God knows the human heart and he knows the human propensity to boast in any way, in any shape or any form in its own success, in its own merit. So God knows the human heart, he knows the Israelite heart, and he knows our hearts as well, that that's really a human condition to boast in ourselves. And so he, Gideon's left with 300 men in verse eight, and that's, if you're doing the math and you like math, it's a 1% retention rate. He's retained 1% of his army for the big battle, and he didn't start with a big army. 
to begin with. And then the camp of Midian is below him in the valley. And so now, if Gideon wasn't scared before, scared enough to go home, he's certainly shaken at this point. So much so that in verse 9, God says, if you are scared, and God know, knows that he's scared, he says, if you're scared or if you're concerned or if you're unsure, go down to the camp and I will strengthen your hand. I will strengthen you by some sign that it's okay. And he says, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand, verse 10, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and I will show you what they say, and afterward, your hand will be strengthened. So God knows that he's scared, and he says, go down, I will give you a sign that will confirm to you that this is my will, that you would go against these people. And we know Gideon, we know his frame, and God knows his frame as well. And God says, I know that your condition is to be doubtful and to doubt that it is my will to go with you, especially now the army is down to 300 men. So Gideon needed encouragement at 32,000 men. Certainly he'll need encouragement when he's left with 300. And then we get this really interesting scene in verse 11, 12, 13, 14. And it's this vision, it's this dream vision, and there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And we can ask all kinds of questions about this. How does this one soldier know Gideon's name? How does the soldier who interprets the dream know how to interpret dreams? It's not like that's a common thing going around. Why did the soldier have the dream and decide to share it with his, his comrade? And so I'm just going to read that dream again just to underscore for you how strange these events are. He says in verse 13, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Now, if you're reading this and you're not given the following interpretation and you're a modern day reader and you're a reader from any century ever, you would not be able to make sense of what that dream says. That there's, there's no rhyme or reason to what that dream interprets as. But in verse 14, this soldier who he's talking to answers and says, ah, I know the answer. This is none other than Gideon, the son of Joash. And so two strange events are happening just about as impossible as a fleece being surrounded by water, staying dry. God is confirming to Gideon that he can miraculously even orchestrate the hearts of two evil soldiers that are against Gideon to confirm for Gideon that it's God's will that he goes into the camp. And so by a prophecy from the mouth of a Midianite soldier, God confirms to Gideon that it's his will to overtake the Midianites. And so to answer all the questions of how this is possible, it's only a miracle that is possible. Not, you can't make any other sense of those verses. And then in verse 15, we see what God promised in verse 11 comes true. God promises in verse 11, and you shall say afterward, your hand will be strengthened to go down against the camp. And verse 15, Gideon hears the telling of the dream. He worships, and then look with me at the second sentence of verse 15. It says, And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And so what exactly what God said is going to happen is going to happen. In verse 16, Gideon is going to hatch this plan. Uh, and this is the plan that we're all, uh, you've probably heard explained to you before. He's got the torches and the jars, and at a certain point in time, he's going to uncover the torches and smash the jars, and they're going to blow the trumpet. And this is supposed to cause chaos for the Midianite army. And so what Gideon does is in the middle of the night, he dispatches all his troops out and around the army. Uh, they're surrounding them and they're in the basin of this valley. And with 300 people, so three groups of 100, Gideon leading one of those groups, they each have torches, they each have jars, and they each have trumpets. They're going to smash it so that the torches all light up at the same time. 
and they're going to blow the trumpets to wake up the people who they're about to attack. Now, if you look at this strategy, you would be tempted to try to say, well, uh, Gideon must be a tactical genius because he must have known that the Midianites are going to wake up, be in disarray, and then they're going to run away. Um, of course, Gideon doesn't know that. This strategy in itself is not a winning military strategy. You don't sneak up on people in the middle of the night and then wake them up before you attack the camp. If you were to do that, you would be thwarting the whole reason why you snuck up in the middle of the night to do so. This is not a winning strategy. So the whole point of success in the strategy is not Gideon. It's not the noise made by the trumpets. It's not the torches. It's not the group of people that's surrounding. Those are all vehicles for God to gain the glory in the victory. Those are all reasons for in which there's no boasting in Gideon. There's only boasting in God. And so you'll see that as this event unfolds, verse 19, Gideon starts to hatch this strategy. And then in verse 21, after they smash the trumpets and they blow and then they say, for the Lord and for Gideon, verse 21, every man stood in his place around the camp. So they're not attacking. They don't have their swords out. They're not doing anything. They just stand around. And then the army of Midian is running around in all directions. They cried out and they fled. And verse 22 is going to explain to us what is going on. Because the rest of this is making no sense. This is not a battle. This is a theatrical display. Verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, what actually was happening was not the army of Midian was struck with fear. What happened is that the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. That's what's happening in these verses. It's God who is at work through Gideon and through his army, but it's God who's at work to deliver the victory. And so he has victory over the army. The army flees. And then you'll see the conclusion of these verses is that um, Gideon then sums back probably the people who he just sent home. He's going to then call them back into pursuing the army and kind of having a more full-fledged victory. Um, and we're going to delve into that more uh, next week. But what I want you to take away from this is these verses, these happenings, are not a demonstration of Gideon's tactical strength. This is not a demonstration of uh, Gideon's uh, bravery to go into battle with 300 people. This is not a demonstration of the Israelites being military, a military superpower. <coughs> this is, as God says in verse 2, so that no one can say by my own hand that I have saved myself. This is God saying, as he does in verse 7, I, Gideon, I will save you and I will give the Midianites into your hand. This is so that the Israelites have no room for boasting and only God could be attributed for the victory. Now, if you zoom out and you ask the question, if that's the main idea of Gideon chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, if the main idea is that God gets the glory and there's no room for human boasting in the victory, the question is, what does that benefit us in the New Testament? What, what does learning about Gideon from thousands of years ago have to do with us now, thousands of years later. Well, the truth is that God doesn't change. He has the same character, and humans are in essentially the same condition, meaning we still seek room for boasting in our own strength. Even if we serve a God who's powerful and we say God does 95% of the work in giving us the victory, if I can boast in this little percent of the victory, then I will boast in that little percent of the victory. So God knows Gideon's frame. He knows that this is Gideon's inclination to boast. He knows that it's the condition of all the Israelites. And he knows it's our condition too. And so when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, the whole reason that you have faith is not so you can boast. 
the whole gift, their whole reason faith is a gift and we understand it as a gift is so there's no room for boasting or as the King James says, lest any man should boast in this gift of faith. That faith excludes works and that excludes boasting. Because what, what Paul knows when he's writing that letter is that if there's any grounds for us to boast in ourselves that we were somehow worthy to be chosen of God or we were somehow better than the other people, that we see ourselves much like, you know, the 300 people who lap and those who kneel, we say, well, if we can look back on it, we, I can see why God would have chosen me for salvation as opposed to somebody else. The whole point is, no, there is no intrinsic reason in any of us why God chose us. There is no intrinsic reason why these things work out. It's all to exclude human boasting and to underscore God's sovereignty. If you, if you take this even further, you can see the same picture illustrated in the preaching of the gospel. Jesus calls his disciples to go preach the gospel and make disciples of the nations. Jesus, who also teaches his disciples, and he teaches us this through Paul, that we actually are dependent on God in the preaching to turn the hearts of sinful people back to himself, that the hearts of people are dead and they're unable to respond to the preaching of the gospel. So then why preach the gospel? Is it because the technique is particularly helpful? Is it because... We need certain evangelistic strategies to make it work. No, it's so that there is, there is no grounds for boasting in the actual preaching. The grounds for boasting always reverts back to the God who sovereignly works in the preaching to deliver the victory. And so it's the same God and the same people who struggle with boasting. And so if you're ever wondering about how our weakness plays a role in God's ultimate plan for salvation, the role it plays is by completely wiping us off the map in terms of being a factor to move the needle for anyone's salvation. And I think that's a glorious thing. In the same way that it brought God glory here in Gideon's victory, so it uh, brings God glory continuously in all of the victories of the church all throughout the history of the saints. So let me uh, pray and then we can open this up for some discussion. Father, I, um, I'm thankful for your reminder to us that uh, there is nothing in us that is particularly beautiful or lovely or a wonderful that we should be able to boast, Lord. If there's any part of our hearts that would be so inclined as to boast in anything that we've done, whether we boast in our sanctification, whether we boast in our decision to follow you, whether we boast in our wisdom or our intellect, Lord, would you please reveal to our hearts how, how rooted in uh, sin that is. Lord, would you show yourself to be powerful in our weakness? Would you display your power in our frailty? And would you allow us to embrace that frailty, not as a mark of shame, but, Lord, as a, a means by which your grace can be most clearly shown. Lord, we thank you for uh, the words of Gideon recorded here. And we thank you that you have given this to us for our edification. And we pray that we would be uh, careful to study these texts and to discuss uh, now in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, in your name, amen.